it's a bit disheartening, I think, to see. And also not unexpected when you think about the ways that things like unconscious bias and racism impact individuals. So I see it. I see it in our emergency departments. I see it on our wards. I see the young Black men or women. The behaviors are automatically assumed to be psychosis. We are more heavy-handed with the medications that we use to sedate and prevent these behaviors from becoming an issue. We are more heavy-handed when we put them in spaces to protect other people because there's this assumption that they are going to be more violent because they have these illnesses. And we don't take the time to explore the ways in which their presentation could be or be due to things other than schizophrenia. So during the pandemic, the inequitable treatment of racialized people was highlighted, but how does race affect a person's ability to receive proper treatment? As we've heard through our discussions with experts, people living with schizophrenia and with family members, discrimination, and in some cases, clinician bias can play a role into how a person is treated within the mental health system. Multiple studies illustrate that systemic racism affects mental health care for racialized Canadians. For example, some research shows that Black people in Canada wait twice as long as other Canadians to access mental health services. Research also shows that racialized people in Canada are less likely to voluntarily access mental health services and are more likely to enter care through a hospital emergency department or through the criminal justice system. Race and serious mental illness is a massive topic and it's not something we're going to be able to cover in one episode, but at least we are going to start having this conversation. And to help guide us through this very difficult and thought-provoking conversation is Dr. Amy Gajaria. Dr. Gajaria is a clinician and psychiatrist in Toronto. She's also an assistant professor and the associate director of equity, diversity, and inclusion for the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. Dr. Gajaria, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Okay, big topic. Now, some clinicians and academics have said that racism is a mental health issue because racism causes trauma. And that trauma can contribute to having a mental illness. So what do you think is the connection between racism and mental illness? Thank you. That's a big question. And I really appreciate you asking it. This is a complicated question. It's a question that's been asked over many years, the relationship between culture and mental illness, the relationship between culture and mental health, race and mental health, ethnicity, mental health. And now we're asking the question, racism and mental health. I think they're linked in a number of ways, questions of access, questions of treatment experience, and questions of treatment outcome based on racism within the medical system, and then the racism that people experience outside of the medical system. We also have, as talked about, racism as a form of chronic stress and as a form of trauma that exists for people throughout their lives. And all forms of trauma and stress can increase risk of the development of mental health concerns. The more stress, the more adversity you experience, the higher risk it is that you might have difficulties with your mental health or develop a mental illness. 
And so racism, and particularly structural, chronic racism, can really increase the risk. And that's not just the experiences of racism or someone making a comment, but it's also thinking about things like structural racism and the idea that people that are racialized often have less access to employment, may live in places where their housing is less secure, may have more financial difficulties, more food insecurity. And so there's a direct link and then a lot of indirect links as well through the social determinants of health. Now you talked about some issues around potentially accessing care in Canada's mental health system. Let's get into that a little bit more. What can racialized people experience when trying to access care? The issue of access, I think, is a big one and one that makes it hard to tease out other questions around diagnoses and outcomes and all of these things. What you will see is that racialized people often talk about a fear of accessing mental health care, partially due to a fear of how they'll be treated. And sometimes that comes from what they hear in their community. Sometimes that also comes from having negative experiences with the health system. And so we see both in the literature and in my clinical experience, people often saying they didn't like the way they were treated. They often felt dismissed. They felt like people didn't understand what they were saying. They just felt they wanted to get rid of me. They didn't want to hear my narrative. They didn't want to hear my story. So if people have negative experiences with the system, they're less likely to come back. And they're more likely to tell folks that they know, hey, this isn't a great experience. Maybe that's not the way to solve your problem. We also know that wait times are longer. And there's an issue of people not wanting to add discriminations. So having additional identities of being stigmatized against. So having an identity as a racialized person where you also already experience discrimination in society and then adding in another discrimination as being a person with a mental health condition can make people more reluctant to access mental health care or go through the mental health system. We also know that people aren't always sure that they're going to get a clinician or have an experience in the system where someone's going to actually understand their full experience. And that, again, makes people really reluctant to access care. So we all know that there's a difference between having a conscious and an unconscious bias. So what do you see as being some of those unconscious biases that racialized people may experience in the mental health system? One of the things that we talk about quite frequently is the assumption of dangerousness. And I do think a lot of the time this is really unconscious. People live in a society where the media represents racialized people, particularly Black men, particularly racialized men, as criminals or as dangerous or as violent. And that's something we commonly see in our media representations. And I think that affects healthcare providers. We are people, we live in that system, we're exposed to all of that. And I think that really impacts mental health experiences, especially for young men, especially for racialized men and Black men, where your care provider can look like they're afraid of you. They can treat you with more assumptions that you're going to do something violent. They can overuse restraints. They can put people in seclusion more often. They can overuse medications because people have this implicit bias about dangerousness and about what it means to be that person. But in clinical experience, I often see especially racialized young men being dismissed as having conduct problems, antisocial personality structures, that they're trying to game the system or they're lying or they're trying to get out of charges. And I see a lot of dismissing of their experiences that I don't think would be dismissed if they were in a different body. And I think, again, that relates to us living in the society that continues to give messages of what it means to be certain kinds of people. 
Thank you for that. We're now going to listen to a clip from one of your colleagues, Dr. Shinto. And we had Dr. Shinto on an earlier episode. And she shared this story about the treatment of someone that she witnessed early on in her career. Let's take a listen now. I have this both horrifying but beautiful story of one night when I was a trainee and I was in the emergency department and the police brought this young guy in handcuffs and he was young, he was still a teenager and he wasn't saying a word. And I was like, I don't understand. Why is he in handcuffs? And they said, he's got schizophrenia. And so finally it's two in the morning and I'm trying to speak to him. He's not saying anything and you can just tell he's just like done. He's exhausted. And finally he says to me, why am I even here? And I said, well, apparently you have schizophrenia and you've not been taking your medication. And he's like, what? Who said I have schizophrenia? And he was <laughs> completely well. He had been in handcuffs for hours because it was a busy emergency night. He'd been in handcuffs for hours. And it wasn't even a case of mistaken identity. It was just that somebody had told the police, pick this guy up. He's likely violent. This tiny little young black kid in handcuffs for hours. And it was an uplifting story because I took the time to speak to him, to get the history and to do a bit of digging and realize that none of what was being said was actually true. And yet he had said it was the third time within two months that he had been picked up by police for this. And it was, uh, it was devastating. Dr. Shinto's experience echoes the reports that say compared with white people with the exact same symptoms, that racialized people, in particular Black people, are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia or psychosis and less frequently diagnosed with mood disorders. What are your thoughts on this? In children and adolescents, you will see that mood disorders and anxiety disorders are less likely to be diagnosed in Black and Hispanic youth compared to what are called externalizing disorders, so things like conduct disorder, ADHD, behavioral problems. And I think this is a similar phenomenon that you're seeing in adults. And I think it's because people see the behavior, but just like Dr. Shinto said, they don't see the person. So I think what we see from that story, from what we see in the data, and what I've thought about why is this happening, and what I've witnessed is that I don't think people hear the story. They don't always see the humanity. I think particularly when it's Black youth, there's this idea that for some reason, people are not curious. They're not interested in why someone is doing what they're doing. They're not asking the questions of why are you doing that? What happened? Let me understand your experience. Let me understand where you're coming from. Let me make an assumption that you have a rich internal world. I think that also goes back to unconscious biases. If you look back to long-standing philosophical literature, it talks about this idea that racialized people are seen as bodies and not minds, and that we don't think about the inner world of racialized people. I think that is the process by which this is happening. So now let's talk about the different mental health conditions or mental illnesses and how they differ between races. So what are the most common illnesses reported by Black, Indigenous, and people of color based on your experience? Interesting question, a difficult question. There's a couple of reasons why it's difficult to answer. 
from a Canadian perspective, we don't do a good job of collecting race-based data. People are trying to change that and develop that. It's actually quite hard at a population level to answer that question because we haven't been asking that question. I think a lot of us will argue that it's less the race of a person and more their experiences. So it's more about as a person who is Black or Indigenous or Hispanic, it's not the fact that you're Black or Indigenous or Hispanic that confers any different risk for a mental health condition. It's the fact that you experience differential racism, access and ability to have opportunities due to systemic racism, not due to your actual race or ethnicity. And actually, when you do look at some of the data from the United States, you see a difference in diagnosis, but this is also what makes it hard to say what is the true difference in prevalence or rates because research is starting to do that. It's starting to ask what is the actual diagnosis out there versus like what does a clinician make as a diagnosis who's really impacted by implicit bias. But I would say those studies are less common. Often you'll see something like the clinician or the psychiatrist or the mental health provider made the diagnosis. But again, you don't know if those diagnoses are accurate in racialized people because of all of the implicit biases and access and things we've talked about. The few studies that try to tease this apart either see similar rates or they see higher rates in racialized people than we would expect because we haven't looked at actually what is the diagnosis separate from the clinician. What do you think the benefit of having more race-based data would be? Because we don't ask the question of do treatments, access to treatment, treatment outcomes, treatment experiences vary on the basis of race, we actually can't tell you anything about about that information. And that matters because we don't actually know if we're doing things right. How can you say we know how to treat depression? We don't know how to treat depression in certain populations because we haven't measured it. We haven't actually said, does CBT for depression in youth work for Black youth? Does it work for Indigenous youth? We say we have evidence-based guidelines and we should follow those guidelines, especially in the treatment of different mental illnesses. But we haven't asked do those guidelines actually work for people of color? Do they work in the same way differently? And because there are so many assumptions out there, because we put whiteness and white experience as the norm, people don't think to ask those questions because they assume that everything's fine. Because if you have a majority white system, you have researchers that are majority white, you have health makers that are totally majority white, they're not going to see a problem with the fact that we don't ask these questions. But racialized people will tell you, well, how come you don't have any, you only have 5% people in your study. People will also say, we can't recruit Black people to our study because Black people are not interested in mental health care, which I've heard before. They're not accessing services. That's not true. And yet we have never asked that question or asked what makes people not come or what is the difference experiences through the door. We're not asking those questions. We don't actually know anything about our system. Now, do you think we're making progress in this area? Do you think we are starting to see an uptake in having more race-based data? I'm a little bit of a cynical person because I've been interested in race and racism and equity and social justice, like probably since I was 10. And so I've seen cycles. And I think most of us who've done this work have seen cycles. In 2020, everyone wanted to talk about race and maybe into 2021. I am hoping that that is sustainable. But I have also seen it in the past where people say, 
we've talked enough about racism. We spend too much time talking about social justice. We need to actually deal with other things. People are tired because of the pandemic. We don't need to talk about these things, to which I say the pandemic is a racial health issue because it disproportionately affects racialized people. But so I've just seen this over and over again. I've seen people get really committed to something for a moment. And then there's the backlash that comes. People want to revert back to what they're comfortable with, revert back to the meat. So I see some movement. I am concerned about how sustainable it is. And I'm hopeful that we are changing some of the conversations in a meaningful way. We are putting structures into place that will last. What about the chronic and persistent mental illnesses? What do you see is the connection between mental illness like schizophrenia and race? I think the challenge with a chronic illness is you have a lot more interaction with the health system. So if you have an illness that's episodic, you might have one, it might be something that doesn't bring you into contact with the hospital system. You might have a couple of interactions and maybe that stress is lower because you're like, I'm just going to go two or three times. You don't have to see someone so often. But I think all the systemic issues that we talk about become even more apparent when you're a person who from an early age is having constant interactions and contacts with the system. And sometimes that's voluntary and quite often it's not if you're a racialized person with a chronic and persistent mental illness. And so I think there's more and more space for there to be negative experiences, for people to feel mistrustful, unheard, to experience medical trauma as a result of those interactions. So how does that unconscious or a conscious racism impact people throughout their entire lifespan when dealing with a mental illness? We see this so early. I see and I hear from patients so early, especially in the school system. We've seen these reports in the news of children being handcuffed by police for behavioral issues. I hear from patients all the time who probably had learning problems or ADHD. They never had access to a psychoeducational assessment. They never were identified as a young person with mental health difficulties. They were always just sent to the office or expelled or suspended or told they were a problem. I've heard that story over and over and over again. And you can understand that early intervention is key a lot of the time for mental health conditions. And if you're in a system where you're a young person and you're supposed to be identified by the adults in your life, they're supposed to care about you and identify the problems you're having, if that gets missed for 10 years, then of course it's going to be more complex when they present in their 20s with untreated illnesses. You're listening to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined, a podcast brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and BC Partner Organizations. I'm your host, Phaedra Aldridge. This podcast would not be possible without the support of the community. From the bottom of our hearts, we want to thank you for caring about serious mental illness and everything that's around it. Together, we truly can make a difference. Welcome back to Look Again, Mental Illness Reexamined. I'm Phaedra Aldridge, and I've been speaking to Dr. Amy Gajaria about how racism can influence the diagnosis, treatment, and outcome of serious mental illnesses for racialized populations. Now, Dr. Gajaria, twice a year, you head to Nunavut to provide psychiatric care to underserved communities, the majority of which are Indigenous peoples. Now, as a clinician, how do you differentiate between someone who is experiencing an incident of racism versus someone who is having delusions 
of experiencing racism due to a mental illness? The one thing I say is these two things can coexist. So people can both experience psychosis or delusions and be experiencing racism at the same time. And frequently we see it with Indigenous peoples in different settings, just based on kind of colonization and systemic factors. It's a difficult thing to tease apart. I think what I always tell folks is that those two things can both be present. You can't just dismiss someone talking about racism as psychosis. And that sometimes has led to that overdiagnosis of psychotic disorders in racialized people for that reason. So something we can say about getting to work with people that are different than yourselves or have a different lived experience is get to know somebody within their context, know the history of where they live, get to know their community, understand what is normative about their experience and what isn't. That requires doing some work ahead of time. And the more you do that, the more you might understand what's within what lots of people experience and what's different. How impaired is someone's behavior? How unusual is it compared to their community? And once you've built trust, ask other people around them. How is your loved one's behavior different than somebody else's? Is is it different? Is it the same? Do you think there's anything unusual about what they're doing or not doing? Often, if there's enough trust, it's the family bringing them to you and saying, there's something very different here. There's something unusual. They're not themselves. So for a lot of people I know that are white, they don't understand how much people don't trust the police. And I actually don't understand how much white people talk about trusting the police. That's a completely different experience for me. And so I think it's just a willingness to really understand that just because you've had one experience and you've lived in one way, it doesn't mean it's everybody's experience. And as you touched on, context is obviously extremely important, both with what the person is experiencing, but also how their community and the people around them respond to them and their experiences. What role do you think? context can play to both the underdiagnoses and or the misdiagnoses of mental illness for people of color? I see people swinging two ways, right? So initially they might have said, if you talk about police violence, you have schizophrenia or you have psychosis back in like the 60s. If you challenge, if you're part of the civil rights movement, you have schizophrenia. And then now what I see is the opposite. If people talk about being followed by the police, people might say, oh, no, no, that's totally normal. No one can have psychosis and talk about that. And what's really important is you have to be contextual and you have to understand someone as a full person. You have to be curious. You have to take the time. You have to wonder with somebody about what's going on. And that sometimes leads you from swinging in one direction or the other. And in terms also of underdiagnosis, sometimes this also goes to that conversation or this expectation that every racialized person has experienced constant oppression in the sense that people who are racialized can't be successful. They can't be professionals. They can't have money. And so sometimes there can be a well-meaning approach to people. I've seen this particularly with Black and Indigenous people in Canada. They're very well-meaning, but they just assume that they like live in poverty. They assume that people have come from trauma, that they've never had positive family structures. And that's also important to challenge, that there's lots of healthy families and successful people and resilient folks within these communities. And if you over-focus on trauma and all of the negatives and actually miss that part, you also miss part of the picture. So throughout this entire conversation, we've been talking about the patients that you care for and the people you work with. But now I'd like to talk about you. 
what has been your experience as a mental health care practitioner of color? I think it has actually been in some ways similar to my patients. So I say that because it is incredibly valuable to me to work with racialized patients, to be able in my practice to see majority people of color, to work with families from different communities. And I'm from Toronto. I work in Toronto to see a practice that feels like it reflects the city that I live in. And that's currently, but in my training, that wasn't the case. And I didn't see people whose experiences I could relate to, who I felt, you know, I understood a lot about how they lived or what their childhoods were like or their neighborhoods were like or their lived experience was like. And I'm just realizing as I'm saying this, that there is such a gift to be able to work with people where you have some shared experience. And I know that patients say that as well that for them, it's such a gift to have a provider that they think they can actually talk to or they can talk about certain things with. But also, I think there's the challenge of all the time before that, when I wasn't doing that, especially in my training, and people would many times question whether racism existed. This is before 2020. People would, four or five years ago, ask questions like, isn't that reverse racism? Just questions that are frustrating, take issue with the fact that I wanted to work with underserved folks or people living in certain experiences or racialized people. And they'd ask questions like, what is it about you that makes you want to do that as if it was a problem? And I'd say we never question the idea that people feel comfortable having a mainstream practice that's unquestioningly homogenous in a certain way, why is it suddenly problematic to want to work with people who are not represented in the system or even just have I shared lived experience with? So I would say training as a mental health provider was extremely difficult as a person of color. I think there's a lot that needs to be changed. I was never particularly interested in medical education, but I went into it because I had a lot of experiences that were negative and I didn't want to see trainees have those same experiences. I wanted us to change our culture, change our curriculum, change the way we treat trainees that are racialized because there is a lot of racism that you experience as a resident, as a medical student, that you think you're going to be protected from a little bit because now you have all this power and you have a certain position in society. And then you realize that doesn't necessarily protect you from all those experiences, which again, I think reflects what some of my patients would tell me who are professionals or lawyers or doctors and yet still are having these experiences. Thank you for sharing that. What do you think needs to change within the system itself, with education, with research, with policies, to make mental health care across our country more equitable? I mean, I would love if we had equitable funding. That would be wonderful. It would be a great place to start. Money is great. And what I always say for people in equity work is when you want to see change, ask people where the money is and where the power sharing is. I can give you a thousand suggestions on what we can actually do with what we have. But the ultimate question that I always ask is, are people who are at the top, who've always had power, willing to give up some of that power? Are they willing to be uncomfortable and to be challenged and to sometimes have difficult and uncomfortable feelings? And are they willing to fund things? Because if the funding is not there, if community services are constantly underfunded, if mental health care in Canada is underfunded, if we're not funding culturally specific care, if we're not putting people in positions of power that can make these changes, that have had these experiences, that have this expertise, nothing else happens. And so often people want you to do it the other way. They want you to suggest, give me a plan and then I'll see if it's worth funding. 
my thing is, are you even willing to have a conversation about funding? Are you even willing to have a conversation about changing structures of power? If you're not willing to have that conversation, there's nothing that can be done. Thank you so much for joining me today. We at least got the conversation started. And I realize it's a huge and very difficult topic. And I'm sure we'll be connecting with you again. So thank you for your experience and for sharing your thoughts with me today. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really thought-provoking. I appreciate your time. And a huge thank you to you, our audience, for joining us for this very difficult episode. Together, we can change the narrative around mental illnesses like schizophrenia and start to end the many myths and stereotypes that still exist today. If you have any questions or any comments, tweet us at BC Schizophrenia. And to get our latest episodes, be sure to hit follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And to hear more about how schizophrenia affects families, we have another podcast for you. Three moms from the East Coast, West Coast, and Middle America host a unique podcast about mental illness. Each host has an adult son with schizophrenia, and they've written acclaimed books about their journeys. They say it like it is, with the goal of helping families learn more about serious mental illnesses. Listen to Schizophrenia, Three Moms in the Trenches, wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you join us next episode. Talk to you soon. This podcast is brought to you by the BC Schizophrenia Society and the BC Partners for Mental Health and Substance Use Information. We're a group of nonprofit agencies providing good quality information to help individuals and families maintain or improve their mental well-being. The BC Partners members are Anxiety Canada, BC Schizophrenia Society, Canadian Institute for Substance Use Research, Canadian Mental Health Association's BC Division, Family Smart, Jesse's Legacy, a North Shore Family Services Program, and Mood Disorders Association of BC, a branch of Lookout Housing and Health Society. The BC Partners are funded and stewarded by BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, an agency of the Provincial Health Services Authority. For more information, visit heretohelp.bc.ca.